right, uh, we're not done with obituaries for today's program, and we've got several more to, to catch up on. How about Henry Loomis? Passed away last month, physicist and the son of one of the most intriguing Americans of the early 20th century. Loomis is best remembered as the man who greatly expanded the reach of Voice of America before resigning to protest LBJ's demand the networks not report on American planes flying over Laos during the Vietnam War. Henry Loomis's father, Alfred, was a fabulously wealthy Wall Street tycoon who survived the stock market crash and built a magnificent private laboratory in his massive stone mansion. He also gave Henry a check for a million dollars for his own personal scientific experiments. Father and son worked together researching radar and brainwaves. Visitors to the home included Albert Einstein, Enrico Fermi, and Niels Bohr. As World War II approached, Henry Loomis dropped out of Harvard to enlist in the Navy. He was assigned to the Pacific Fleet in Pearl Harbor and helped establish radar training schools. In 58, Eisenhower appointed Loomis director of the Voice of America with a mandate to expand its operations. Loomis increased the VOA's broadcasting power, established transmitters in previously unserved countries like Liberia and the Philippines, and helped create a 1,500-word vocabulary called Special English to spread English as an international language. After resigning the VOA in protest versus LBJ, uh, he was picked up by President Nixon in 1972, who named him president of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, where he generated controversy again for his efforts to give local stations more control over their programming. He resigned that post in 1978 and returned to private life. Also passing away recently, Florence W. Wall, the former dean of the Yale University School of Nursing, who brought hospice to the United States. Florence Wald sparked a movement that grew from the first hospice program established in the U.S. in 1971 to more than 3,200 nationwide, offering comfort, care, and pain relief to patients in their final weeks and months, and helping to ease the distress of families faced with the loss of loved ones. Her obituary notes that when she was dean of the nursing school in the 60s, the medical establishment focused entirely on cures, with little attention given to palliative care and the patient's wishes about care. And if you've ever had an experience with hospice, uh, as I have, I can tell you they are, they are a wonderful uh, organization. We all owe a debt of thanks to Florence S. Wald. Also passing away recently, Carl D. Keith, co-inventor of the three-way automotive catalytic converter, a major advancement in eliminating the toxic tailpipe emissions that once blanketed cities in smog. Keith designed his converter in the early 1970s just as the stricter emissions requirements of the Clean Air Act extension of 1970 were coming into effect. His three-way converter was a significant improvement over earlier devices and is now standard for cars and light trucks made in the United States and in most of the rest of the world. Another recent obituary, Alan Ford. He was a 19-year-old Yale student when he broke five-time Olympic gold medalist Johnny Weissemiller's world record of 51 seconds in the 100-yard freestyle, a record which had stood for 16 years. Alan Ford became the first swimmer to break 50 seconds for that event, a barrier often likened to the four-minute mile. His obit noted that unlike more recent Olympic champions, Mark Spitz and Michael Phelps, who were taller and leaner, Ford was a bullet-shaped, five-foot-nine athlete who weighed a muscular 170 pounds. He unfortunately uh, did not ever win a gold medal in the Olympics, thanks to the fact that they canceled the 1944 Summer Games due to the still ongoing war. But he did win several national collegiate championships in the 
50 and 100 yard freestyle and the 150 yard backstroke. Although maybe, maybe a bit past his prime, he did try for the 1948 Olympics, made the team, and captured a silver medal in the 100-meter freestyle event during the London Games. And finally passing away a week ago or so was everybody's favorite mom, actress Beverly Garland. Beverly Garland had a long and varied acting career, ranging from B-movie cult stardom in the 1950s portraying gutsy characters in movies including Not of This Earth and It Conquered the World, to playing Fred McMurray's wife in the sitcom My Three Sons. Now, I did not realize this, that we had a hotel in Sacramento called the Beverly Garland, which, not surprisingly, was built by she and her husband. She once said about her playing Fred McMurray's wife on My Three Sons, the only thing that bothers me is that everybody loves this character so much. I don't remember anybody loving me all that much. I know perhaps you caught uh, caught <laughs> the photo that accompanied her obituary. It's one of my all-time favorite bad sci-fi movie photographs. It shows Beverly Garland uh, with with a look of fear on her face, looking out the window at this space alien that looks to be something like a cross between a monkey and a giant celery stalk. That evidently was from the film It Conquered the World. Apparently, her fellow actors liked her a great deal, which is not something can be said about every actress. Said Mike Connors, who appeared with uh, Beverly Garland in Roger Corman's low-budget 1955 film Swamp Women. Not only was she a terrific actress, she was one of those special gals who was fun to work with. Connors also later worked with her when she made some guest appearances on his TV detective series Mannix. And here's an odd obituary addendum. Apparently a drum maker in London, name not released, died last week after contracting anthrax from animal hides he was using to make bongos. The UK Health Protection Agency said the man probably inhaled spores while scraping hair from a contaminated hide, but stresses that hazards don't arrive from playing or handling finished drums. All right, let's go back across the Atlantic to, uh, to quote from some of uh, the fine U.K. publications, in this case, The Economist. As kind of a prelude to an article about Thailand, the magazine wrote the following. What has happened to the coup d'etat? Once a staple of international news, a reliable dose of drama relished by foreign correspondents and diplomats, the old art of coup-making is dying out. In a typical year this decade, there have been some five coups or attempted coups around the world, according to researchers at a Heidelberg think tank. Last year saw just a single recorded event. A coup remains a possibility in Thailand this year. In contrast, the 1960s and 70s, when hired guns such as the Frenchman Bob Denard rushed about toppling governments of small African countries, there were as many as 25 coups or attempts yearly. The magazine explains that the end of the Cold War and the spread of democracy may help to explain why coups have fallen out of fashion. They noted that Africa remains the region most prone to coup d'etats, but even there, governments have grown less willing to recognize those who shoot their way into office. But I was quite blown away by The Economist's excellent article about the events going on in Thailand. As you may have noticed, there's been some, uh, some protests in Thailand where airports have been shut down and great deal of turmoil in the country. Well, uh, the magazine takes some time to explain how Thailand got in this current predicament. 
and in doing so reveals some fascinating data, which this correspondent was uh, unaware of, about the king of Thailand. Now, in Thailand, the king is not just a figurehead. I've heard reliable reports that uh, if you, for example, burn a denomination of Thai money, like you might burn a dollar bill, you are subject to arrest for your insult to the king who's on the money. But noted the magazine, even the most reasoned criticism of the monarchy in Thailand is forbidden, punishable by up to 15 years in jail. This has had a remarkable effect not just on Thais, but on successive generations of Western diplomats, academics, and journalists, who with few exceptions have meekly censored themselves. But here's the part that's really fascinating. The origins of this strong monarchy in Thailand go back to the Vietnam War. America found King Bumibal, I don't know if I'm saying that right, a staunch anti-communist ally. Recognizing his value as an anti-red icon, America pumped propaganda funds into a campaign that put the king's portrait in every Thai home. If you've been to Thailand, you will note that the king's portrait is everywhere, but you may not note the fact that the portrait might have been bought with U.S. tax dollars. Magazine went on, even today, although quick to decry undemocratic moves in other Asian countries, America rarely protests at the arrests of Thais and foreigners for criticizing the monarchy. Foreign journalists and academics need visas and access to officialdom to do their jobs and thus have played down the royal angle to any story. Notes the magazine, as a result of this conspiracy of silence, only one serious biography exists of one of Asia's most important leaders. That would be The King Never Smiles by Paul Handy, an American journalist, who notes that the king's restoration of power and prestige of the Thai monarchy is one of the great untold stories of the 20th century. Anyway, to make a rather long story short, it turns out the king of Thailand is constantly meddling behind the scenes in the politics of the country. And that is, in fact, currently the, the conservative royalist elements that are causing all the protests, rebelling against the prime minister, who's seen as a force to be reckoned with uh, by the king. The article notes that the, the judges in Thailand are very willing to do the king's bidding. As we, we reported a couple of weeks ago, uh, they sacked the prime minister for doing a television cookery show. Apparently, the king is 81 years old. He's been in power for 62 years. The crown prince is enormously unpopular, and, uh, well, there's some speculation that uh, if his sister, Princess Surindhorn, does not become uh, the leader of Thailand once the king dies, well, it, there may be a coup d'etat in the making. And it's curious to note that the Thais are a superstitious people, and they note there's an old prophecy that their dynasty would only last for nine generations, and King Bumabal is the ninth Chakri king. Prophecy also said the 10th king would be a disaster. And final item of the day from New Scientist magazine, uh, noting that the end of the Bush administration was nigh, the magazine noted that uh, he could do, he could really strike a blow for environmentalism by designating a lot of Pacific uh, territories, some islands in which the U.S. has jurisdiction, as uh, protected regions. You'd think after seven years they would know this president a little bit better than that. After floating that idea, a couple weeks later they printed the the following headline, George Bush's parting swipe at the environment. Now they, they noted that they had reported on some recent moves by the White House to create large marine conservation areas, areas in the Pacific, but in a flurry of last-minute rulemaking, Bush looks set out to weaken protection for endangered species and hand concessions to oil companies.
One rule is going to allow oil companies to uh, apply for commercial drilling licenses in undeveloped public lands in the Rocky Mountain areas looking for oil shale. And uh, as far as endangered species go, at present, government projects to build new roads or dams must consult with the Fish and Wildlife Service or the National Marines Fishery Service, which can demand more detailed assessments if the plans appear to threaten rare species. New rule would ditch that requirement said Andrew Wetzler of the National Resources Defense Council. They call it self-consultation. The name says it all. And uh, in the Bush countdown, we're now at day 40. We've got 40 more days of this guy sitting in the Oval Office pretending to be president. And just think, when we next meet a week from now, it'll be just 33. I think it's safe to say there's going to be some mischief nevertheless in the next few weeks, which we will uh, try and keep an eye on, as should you. Dear listener, you're listening to Radio Parallax. Our thanks to Bruce Bronstein and our buddy Will Durst. If you'd like to hear the entire Ray Bradbury interview, that's on our archives at radioparallax.com. I believe it was June 1st, 2006. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week at the same time. Radio.